Temple University is ranked among the top 50 public universities in the U.S. Through hands-on learning opportunities and world-class faculty, Temple students are prepared to soar in their careers. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. visit Hello and welcome to another episode of the Heretics Podcast. Heretics is a podcast about heresy and the unrecognised foundational assumptions upon which societies, cultures and religions have been based throughout history. We are your heretics, I'm Graham Barlow and with me is Damon Smith. Damon, how are you today? I'm very good mate, how are you doing? I'm not bad. Now today I think we will be looking at um, the Greeks. So we're going to start with, uh, this is kind of something we mentioned at the end of our last podcast about the connection between the, everything the Greeks were doing around the same time as the the kind of origins of uh, the, the stuff written in the Bible, what happened. So yeah. I think we're going to start with Thales and the Milesian school, is that correct? That's right, that's right, yeah. So it's a good place to start with any with the Greeks, isn't it? The, yeah. um, the, the Greek, what we call the Greeks now, um, weren't, weren't, were, were around, I mean, we're talking about very ancient civilization, but those people were around before the concept of being a nation was even imagined in the West. So there were really a bunch of city-states that shared a common kind of culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, when we're talking about people like Thales, or even further back, you know, the, the famous the famous names uh, in the quote-unquote history of Greece, uh, you have Homer and you have Hesiod, um, who were the great... Uh, poetic chroniclers of the Greek myths. They um, they were even earlier than this. They were they were operating around the sort of 700 BC, uh, and that is if you think in terms of how the Old Testament of the Bible was formed. The Old Testament was formed, uh, in my opinion, it was formed through the events of what's known as the Babylonian exile. The uh, the relocation of the, um, the, if you like, Hebrew-speaking elites from what's now the Holy Land to Babylon, um, and, and the the experience that they had there, picking up from Babylonian religion and various other things, um, and following that, the Old Testament arose. Uh, you would talk about sort of the the mid five hundreds BC. Well, Thales um, comes a bit before that, and Homer and Hesiod come hundreds of years before that. So we're talking about stuff that's happening before, not just before the New Testament, we're talking about stuff that's happening before the Old Testament as well, or before the writing of the Old Testament. Uh, And you might think, well, what relevance does stuff that was going on in Greece have to the writing of the Old Testament? Well, as we'll find out, there's quite a lot of relevance uh, a, a huge relevance to the writing of the New Testament in the Bible. And, you know, this is how we got on the subject in the first place. Um, and so I think it's it's worthwhile having a look at it. It's obviously this is going to be a multi-part series as well. Uh, I don't think, because, you know, obviously we want to get up to the big name people mm-hmm. who created the worldview that endured within Christianity, um, you know, the, the pseudo-scientific basis of Christianity for well over a thousand years uh, was the basis that was created by Aristotle, the teacher of Alexander the Great. Um, but I just thought it probably better we could start there, uh, and then we get into things like Alexandrian syncretism and the, the 
what happened in the disintegration of the of Alexander's empire, um, which had again massive basis on stuff we've already talked about. Um, uh, but I think starting a bit further back is is better. And you know, if we want to go as far back as we can in terms of what's available in the literature, you're talking about these two epic poets, Homer and Hesiod, um, who basically recorded. Uh, the results of a great series of oral tradition, you know, shamanistic societies throughout the world, they teach their kids, uh, they teach uh, and transfer knowledge between uh, each other in the form of story, in the form of tales. They, they sit around the campfires, which I think was we said before, some hunter-gatherer societies that don't spend a lot of time doing what we call working. If you think the hunter-gatherers, then their work is hunting and gathering and the I think somebody said one particular tribe spent about eight hours a week um, hunting and gathering, and the rest of the time they sit around the, the fire telling stories and dancing and doing shamanism and you know That's all that other stuff that they do. It's a rather short working week. Yeah, <laughs> how did it all us. go wrong for us? <laughs> uh, I don't know, but as we've said before, there are there are examples of people who have tried civilization and then reverted to hunter gather lifestyle when they found out what it was really like. Yeah. Um, but anyway, well, how did it all go wrong for us? Well, that's what, that's what we're talking about. Because us, Everything. us the Westerners, me and you, uh, you know, we've done a lot of stuff about ancient China. We've been done stuff about the history of Japan and all that area of the world. But if we're talking about me and you and our culture and where we come from, this all started with the Greeks. This, mm. this, this whole thing that we do that we call Western civilization started with the Greeks and later on started off with this sort of what you could call a Greek offshoot of the Roman Empire. Uh, the two things uh, eventually became one thing. Uh, and all of the stuff that we've inherited, including our version of Christianity, which is effectively Roman Christianity, um, all of that stuff that we've been steeped in for 2,000 years, all of that started with these guys. Uh, so I think that it's very important to us to understand what was going on there. So this storytelling tradition that they had in those days, these, these great poets, they, they recorded it, and they recorded it in two different forms. They're very similar to what went on in the Far East. Uh, Homer was more about, you know, the history uh, of great uh, momentous events in the early history of what became the, the Greek people. Um, the two famous works, the Iliad, which deals with the famous Achilles, uh, isn't that Brad Pitt? I think Brad Pitt was Achilles. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and the Trojan War, and then the other one, the Odyssey, which is Odysseus, a character from the Iliad, is a, a shall we say a eventful return to Greece. Yeah. Uh, those are the two poems of Homer. But from our point of view, from a shamanism point of view, Hesiod is is probably slightly more interesting. Uh, he dealt with. Uh, something that happens in shamanistic cultures the world over when they first start to become what you would call uh, exotericized at the very, very start or origins of uh, exoteric religion among these tribes, if you like, is that in a shamanistic understanding, the, the world is viewed in terms of there's, there's a unity within nature, and as we've discussed, there are kind of underlying principles within nature that a shaman learns to understand. Uh, even the people in animistic societies learn to understand at a kind of intuitive or a synergistic level. Um, 
and you know what I everybody knows what I mean by understanding. Mm. I, I don't just mean understanding your mind; I mean mind, spirit, and body acting together as one entity, not separate from nature. But when you start to understand in your mind alone and all that other stuff about your body and your spirit and interacting with nature and, and being being part of nature and learning directly from nature, when that starts to fall away, the emphasis goes to the mind, the emphasis in terms of the trigram, so the emphasis goes to the baseline. And people start exotericizing those principles. One of the first things they can do is give them names, you know, and, and, you know, in, in Shamanism, there's this, this uh, understanding that nature has a threefold aspect. We have, um, we have a, you know, a creative realm, uh, a manifest world. The creative realm is the impetus that, that gives rise to changes within the world. The manifest world is the place where those changes occur. And then the underworld, if you like, the, the, the receptive realm is the place where those changes uh, have their results, which then becomes the raw material from which the creative realm continues to generate the manifest realm. That's an ancient shamanistic idea. Like this goes back way prehistory. This is it, this kind of idea is in the shamanism of every kind of shamanism that we have in the world. Uh, some version of this kind of idea, and so it's prehistoric that stuff. Um, but when we talk about it becoming anthropomorphized, well, you can see here in Hesiod what does the creative realm come? Well, that becomes Eros. That's the, the creative principle, the, the god, if you like. Uh, the, the god-ified creative principle. Um, and then you've got Gaia, you know, which is the manifest realm. The Gaia being the, the Earth Mother, again, anthropomorphizing these, the three realms, if you like. And then you've got Tartarus, which is the receptor realm. It's the, it's the underworld, if you like, in shamanistic terms. And these, uh, the first the, the first things that sort of come into being in Hesiod's myth. Uh, so what he's doing, he's just starting to uh, exotericize shamanism. He's not changing shamanism very much at all. He's just turning these principles into people. Uh, and this seems to happen time and time again. It's the easiest way to turn shamanism into an exoteric religion. It's just to take all these weird and wonderful uh, experiences and intuitions that we have in shamanism, stick names on them, maybe carve statues to show what they look like as people. Um, and um, also another thing in shamanism that you get the world over is this idea of uh, analogy between um, uh, re reproduction, human reproduction or animal reproduction and the creation of various aspects of the world. Uh, you see it in yin and yang, China, uh, in Japan, and some of the Shinshikyo, um, they they have the idea of uh, heaven and earth, husband and wife, representing the universe or the interaction, uh, that creation, and, and you get this in in Hesiod as well, this kind of idea, and that's why it gets Eros in as one of these originators uh, because. Eros has to be there for the other gods, quote-unquote, to start interacting with each other and give rise to various other things. Um, and um, the things that become nature through basically reproduction. And one of these things is, um, is what's known as the Muses, who are sort of goddesses of inspiration. And they are the daughters of Zeus and memory. Uh, and... It's these muses that Hesiod turns to, 
in terms of explaining where his theogony has come from. This is, uh, as explained by him, this is just harking back to old Shemite tradition. Uh, we know they had this in, in ancient Greece, for the Oracle of Delphi is very, very well attested. We know they had shamans, effectively, early on in Greece. Uh, and all, all he's doing is just giving a shamanic type of explanation. It wasn't me, it was the underlying spirit of nature, it was the muses who, who inspired me to come up with this poetry. Uh, and, and so the theogony of, as, as a, later become a religious work that explains the origins of the religion of ancient Greece, it had the same status to the Greeks as, say, the Quran has to Muslims today. Uh, the Quran wasn't didn't come from Muhammad, the Quran came from God, and it, it was transmitted through Muhammad. Uh, the Theogony had exactly the same role in ancient Greece. Uh, the, the Theogony wasn't written by Hesiod, it was transmitted through Hesiod uh, by the Muses, who were the, effectively the daughters of the king of the god Zeus. Hmm. Um, and so you can see all of this stuff is exotericizing shamanism. But it's doing it in a very, very lightweight way. And probably at the time when Hesiod w- was collecting these old traditions, the people who transmitted those old traditions were probably much more shamanistic than he was. Um, and he was probably much more shamanistic than the later generations that, that came down from them. You, with Homer and, um, and Hesiod, you're probably talking... Uh, about 50, 70, 100 years before Thales, the, the guy we want to talk about, was born. Hmm. Um, they, they had created what effectively was an exoteric religion of the Greeks, which had regional variations in different places. You know, the big center for Greek uh, religion was obviously Athens. And there is a, there's a school of thought that... Uh, Thales actually came from Athens originally and he migrated to uh, Miletus. Miletus is a place in what's now Asia Minor. Uh, it's on the west coast of Asia Minor. We yeah, Turkey today. Um, and um, he's sort of looking back through the lens of history, looking back through the lens of uh, the ideas of later people like the, the Big Three, you know, Socrates, Plato and Aristotle, he was effectively what they would see as the first philosopher. Um, I I really don't think he was a philosopher, but he couldn't possibly have been, because in terms of the Western view of what a philosopher is, uh, it was Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle who invented what a philosopher is. You know? uh, I, I see him much more in a different way. I see him as a guy who uh, tried to uh, get people to go back to nature. He was a Yoshida Kanatomo type of a figure. His his religion, the religion of his people, had become exotericized to the point where he became frustrated with that. And he wanted to get people to go to nature directly um, rather than um, rather than just taking other people's word for it in a religious kind of in a religious kind of way. And so what's very, very interesting and, and what's most famous about him, he started he started thinking about a thing called the Arche. Now, if you remember what we said about shamanism, shamanism is based on uh, an intuition that, again through shamanic technique, that, that the universe has an underlying unity, that, that all the things that we see are just sort of echoes or changes of something that's common, that underlies everything within 
nature. And he he was of this, uh, he was inclined this way as well. And he called that underlying thing the arche. That's an interesting one to show you how much these guys influenced us. We have that word in English. Uh, we have that word in the in the root of archaeology, um, and we also have it in the word archaic. Uh, and this, you know, these these sort of ideas come back all the way from Thales and, and the archaic, the underlying principle of nature. And he encouraged people, as far as we understand, he encouraged people to look back to nature. And the very stories about the things that he did. Uh, he started doing very practical things. Uh, you know, the Greeks at that time, they were a seafaring people, and this is how they spread so far and wide, and how they had strong influences on places like what we now call the Holy Land, because they, they lived off the sea and they were migratory. They moved out and they put down roots in places all around the Mediterranean, places much further away from what we call Greece than, for instance, the Holy Land, you know, Spain and, and even further afield. Um, so, so they were. So their ideas spread far and wide from early time. They come from uh, earlier origins. Uh, people like the Phoenicians and the Minoans, uh, who were, were closely related to them, uh, who were also seafaring peoples. And it tends to be that these seafaring peoples who are very uh, inclined towards trade and commerce and and trading goods to different places, these people tend to spread their ideas far, and that happened for a long, long time. And the Mediterranean is is a sea that encourages that kind of thing. You have many different peoples around this relatively, uh, around the circumference of this relatively small sea. I mean, it's not an ocean, is it? It's not compared to the Atlantic or something. Yeah, yeah. It's relatively small, relatively benign sea uh, for, for travelling by ship. Uh, and he did also some, so for instance, you know, things like he, he would sit on the shore and use sticks and measure the angles between them, try and figure out how far out ships are at sea, mm. um, that type of stuff. It was very, very practical stuff that he did. Uh, he wasn't a guy that was willing to take people's word for it. And, and he started thinking about the arcane or, or trying to understand the arcane and what he thought it was. And it was him, it was Thales who came up with this idea that we talked about in Genesis, Genesis 1. This idea that, you know, that as Genesis 1 puts it, the Spirit of God was flying over the waters. The God didn't create the waters in Genesis 1. The waters were already there. They were like the pre-existing thing out of which the land emerged and various other things emerged over time, but they were there. Uh, obviously, Genesis 1 sees the waters as sort of somewhat evil. Thales probably didn't. But Thales was the guy who came up with this idea originally. He was the guy who said, okay, that origin of all things is water. Hmm. When he was sitting on the coast at Miletus looking out to sea, he saw this water. He just got the impression that this land is just floating on top of that water. And this is how, for instance, how he would explain things like earthquakes. Uh, you know, the, the land moves because under the under the water under the land has got sort of waves in it or something like that, and that makes the land move because the land's floating on top. That's how he explained things like this. Um, and so he saw the Arche as water, um, uh, as a kind of fluid character. So so the point here, I guess the heresy, the first heresy of the day, well, no, I guess the first heresy of the day is Thales is not a philosopher. That's probably quite a controversial statement in philosophy departments of universities all over the world. Um, but another controversial thing is 
Now, Thales agrees with the Old Testament far more than Christ modern Christians agree with the Old Testament because most modern Christians agree with uh, one of the guys who came after Thales um, about regarding um, you know, the fact that God created the world from nothing, which is, I guess, if we did a survey of modern Christians, most Christians would probably say that God created the world from nothing, directly contradicting what the Bible says. Uh, and but um, Thales doesn't contradict the Bible. Thales agrees with it. But the key point, my key point is here: I believe that Thales came up with the stuff before Genesis was written. That's my that's my other heresy for the day. Mm -hmm. And so you can see influence from the Greeks appearing in the Bible. What was different about Thales from what had gone before, for instance, Hesiod and Homer, is Hesiod didn't feel the need to give any explanation of anything. Um, it was just these things, you know, these just things happened. Gaia appeared and Tartarus appeared and the, and there's no explanation of any kind of mechanism or what they appeared from or anything like that. The difference with Thales is he's he's trying to get people back to nature. He says, look, this, this stuff is interconnected. This stuff works in a certain way. And the thing that he's famous for, I mean, he, he was he's also famous within, among mathematicians, he's famous for all kinds of different, uh, he's a bit like Archimedes and Co. He's hmm. famous for innovations in geometry and various other things. Uh, but in terms of his broader understanding of the world, he was a guy who uh, wasn't happy to just accept that this stuff just happened. He wanted to know how it happened. And in a way, you can see there is the start. Thales is the very start, the initial bud of the Western scientific tradition. This idea that was later reinforced by people like Aristotle, that uh, you could understand the world through examining the world the difference between Thales is he was participant of, he was like a shaman, he was engaged in this stuff himself personally, whereas later on the scientific tradition got this sort of stand back and observe kind of idea hmm. put into it by people other than Thales. So, so this is a good guy to, to, to comment on in this podcast because the scientific tradition is another one we'd like to talk about over time. There's a lot of the Western esoteric groups, particularly the Rosicrucians who we'll probably talk about a lot in future who are very, very closely related to the uh, to the scientific tradition, the development of the scientific tradition. Um, interestingly enough, just an anecdote, uh, near the, the office where I'm working at the moment, I'm in Cambridge at the moment, at the university, uh, there's, a, there's a botanical garden hmm. and it's, you know, there's a tree that was seeded an apple tree that was seeded from the seeds of the apple tree in Isaac Newton's garden that he, um, you know, the one the apple came down. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so this is just, I thought that was really cool. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, um, and the apples, are, right now, the apples are coming down. There's actually apples lying on the ground around this tree, which is quite cool. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so Newton, there's another guy we'll talk about. He's a very interesting guy in terms of the scientific uh, community's view on him, um, you know, for probably one third of the work that he did, uh, he's a he's a genius. He's amazing. He's Superman. Uh, his innovations were, were, you know, unparalleled. His understanding of the world was unparalleled. And for two thirds of the work he did, he was a blithering idiot who didn't understand anything. Yeah. <laughs> and maybe we're going to talk a bit more about that. And they don't like to talk about that. The two thirds of his work. No, uh, and no, maybe no. we're going to talk about that quite a bit more than they do. That's probably the best way to put it. Yeah. 
when we get onto that. So anyway, so back to back to ancient Greece. So so this guy started something of a tradition. Uh, there were a couple of other people um, who came after him in what's what's known as the uh, what became known as the Mycenaean school. Um, and, and they all shared this kind of general worldview that come from shamanistic intuition. Originally, this arche uh, was the was the source of everything, and all things come out of the arche. Uh, and when they perish, they go back to the arche. It's a very shamanistic idea. Mm. Uh, the, um, the the Japanese famous Japanese shamanist Miki, who we talk about a lot, um, she she was asked once, uh, "What happens to people when they die? Where do they go?" Uh, I think in the hope that somebody said she was going to say oh they go up to heaven uh, or something you know and those sort of things and she didn't say that she said they're embraced in the in the bosom of Kami uh, Kami being the Ake in, in that tradition um, and it, it, it's that kind of thing and they're held there until the Kami re-emits them into the world again it's kind of um, it sounds like reincarnation but it's not really it, it's about this this general idea where you've got an underlying principle that, that's the nature of the creation, and then everything else is just change and echoes down through the generations of that original unity, um, and that you know when when things die when they perish they, they don't go away to nothing they become they go to the underrealm Tartarus as Hesiod would call it, um, and and that becomes the raw material from which the creative realm continues to generate the manifest world. So, hmm. so this Malaysian school, a couple of other important people in it who came in, in quick succession. Um, the first one was Anaximander, who uh, was active uh, before, at least lived to, to a right old age. He was about 80, possibly, mm-hmm. when he died. Incidentally, a lot of this stuff, we don't know about these guys directly. It's all, it's all indirect things that people have said about them, but they have said quite a lot of them about them, especially Thurley's. Um, and you have to sort of read between the lines because the people who have said things about them are people like Aristotle. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Thales was, was about 80 or something when he died, so he lived right on age. So the next one in sequence, Anaximander, was definitely knocking around when Thales was around and, and, and engaged in this stuff. It may be that Anaximander was actually his student because uh, they're both in uh, Miletus, they're both in this, this same sort of area of the world. Um, and they, they had very, very similar worldviews, but Anaximander's sort of innovation uh, was to say that um, things don't come from water, uh, like Thales in the Bible say. Uh, the, the first principle uh, uh, kind of rejected that idea. He believed that the arche was an indefinite thing. It wasn't anything. It wasn't a thing like water, and it wasn't a thing like air or uh, you know, rocks or anything like that. He saw it as something, something more abstracted than that, something indefinite. Um, and he, um, that was a really way diverged from the guy Thales, who was possibly his teacher or his his guide, if you like, uh, in later life. Um, and then when Thales did die, that's around about five four five. Uh, BC, all these dates, I'll just give the number of all these dates of BC, obviously we're not going to mention in this series, not going to mention any AD dates for a very long time um, and so there's another guy called Anaximenes who again may have been an Aximander student 
and he he had a notion that the arche was a, a, a vapor or a mist. Uh, he used the term air, A-E-R, um, which is like where our word air comes from. Mm. But a, a translation like that's probably not the greatest. So the, the idea of the arche is air to Anaximenes was much more like chi in, you know, in the Chinese tradition. This idea of a sort of vapor underlying energy uh, that crystallizes uh, that has a sort of um, uh, morphing aspect to it and it crystallizes into various things that exist. And so the three of them, but the three of them, they're, they're, they're called the, the Milesian schools, that's Thales, Naximander, and uh, Aximenes, they they all bought into this idea of the archaic underlying principle, but as you can see as it goes through the generations, it's, it's starting to get a bit exotericized. So what we've had is Homer and um, the the epic poetry uh, of the of history, which which in some parts of the world, like in Japan with Kojiki and the Nihon Shoki, that stuff sort of gets turned into a religion. You know, for instance, the origins of the the current emperor of Japan, they have this mystical historic history myth thing uh, that goes back to the year dot, and that gets turned into a religion at a much later date. And then we have Hesiod's, you know, we've got these Greek gods who are just like ordinary human beings, but they're super powerful, you know. Zeus doesn't like you, you're just wacky with a thunderbolt or something, you know. Um, but they behave like human beings and they, they're petty and they're just like the god of the Old Testament and they will somewhat more reasonable than the god of the Old Testament on the whole, probably, but they are, they are definitely flawed in character. Um, and they get turned into a, they get turned into a religion. And so along comes Thales and says, hey, let's start looking at nature. Let's get, get in, let's get involved in nature. Let's try and learn something directly from nature. And he felt that he'd learned that the, the origins of the universe were in water because water seemed to be so important. The human body is mostly composed of water. Uh, and as he saw it, things went away from water and came back to water. Um, and so he... You'd say scientifically he was probably wrong about that, but the bottom line is he was he was making some kind of inquiry, uh, whereas the, the earlier stuff was all just based on what you believe in without any inquiry going on at all. That the the this, the, the uh, system of inquiry that he instigated at that time, you know, you're talking, um, you know, around 600 BC onwards. Um, he that that is what we now call science. That became what we now call science. He's, he was the orig- far root originator of modern Western science. Um, and in terms of what we have become, uh, because you can definitely trace a line through these guys, the Milesian school then leads on to the later famous philosophers, and then Socrates and Plato lead on to Aristotle. Aristotle becomes the, the teacher of Alexander the Great, as we'll see. And then Alexander the Great pushes this stuff out far and wide. You know, he creates a huge empire, mm. taking all this stuff with him, uh, and and then sort of goes on to influence all the stuff that happens in ancient Rome, and then ancient the Romans invade Britain, and, you know, <laughs> and bringing this stuff with them. Mm. You know, uh, and you know you have also things like um, the idea that uh, it was a, a Trojan or Greek. A colony uh, escaping after the Trojan War that originally created uh, the Latin people in, 
wrong and you know so the bottom line is for us who we are uh, and what our culture is and what our legal system is and what our political system is we'll get onto that as well with the Greeks um, all of these things you can trace all of them back to this guy this one guy Thales uh, and my heretical point I guess to close on for the day is one of those things you can trace back to him is also Christianity uh, and indeed uh, the Old Testament as well as the New Testament uh, and I think that's pretty much uh, what I wanted to say about families. So maybe a short, shorter one today. Yeah. Um, Let me ask you a few think... questions about him, though. Yeah, sure. Okay. Um, yeah, of course. So I know he's got. The, he had this idea that the, there was this the ark, uh, the substance of water, which created everything. But he also had this idea that water created fire, didn't he? Yeah. Uh, and, and you can see why he's interested in looking at the world. And you know, if you if you put a flame near a piece of glass, sometimes you will see little water droplets uh, appearing on the on the glass, depending on what it is that's burning. Yeah. Um, and so you can you can see that. So his his view was that it wasn't that it created fire; it was that all things come out of the the arche, and all things go back to the arche. So his view was like cyclical. It was like fire comes out of water and then it goes back into water. Well, if you want a scientific explanation of that, you know, what's water? It's hydrogen and oxygen, right? Mm. Um, and so what happens when you, you know, you put hydrogen and oxygen together and stick a little bit of a flame in, the whole lot burns, right? Yeah. Uh, and then you get water back out of the, get water back out of the reaction, you know, so, so in that kind of way, you can say, right, but my, my other suspicion is that you didn't really mean like literally water. This sort of thing, literal stuff and putting things in literal little boxes, that all came later. That came with Plato, and well, that came with Plato basically. Right. Yeah. Uh, the, the putting things in little boxes. So, my my point is, I, I think that when he said water, I suspect that yes, we only know about these guys from what other people said about them, um, and we have sort of fragments of what they said themselves. But I think that I think that when he said the arcade was water. You know, we don't know exactly what he meant by that. I suspect that he was a figure very like Yoshida the Kanatomo. Uh, and, you know, when you read the writings of Kanatomo, they're, they're in a language that's deliberately structured to try to prevent people from doing what their natural knee-jerk reaction is, to put things into little boxes. But he's not as clever as the, the creator of the Ejig. <laughs> It's just not, you know, and people inevitably will. They will inevitably try and force their own worldview onto the words that are on the page. Uh, and so I, I strongly suspect that possibly like the, the writer of Genesis 1, who knows, he uh, was more like the arcade has a fluid character. Uh, the arcade is something that's changing. It's not something that's immovable. It's not something that, you know, it's, it's fixed like ice. Something that's very fluid, like water. So when he said it's water, he was talking about uh, water in a, in a Western esoteric tradition sense, the element water, uh, not the scientific element water, but the Western esoteric idea of water. Uh, something that had a fluid character, something that's changeable. Uh, and so in that sense, I think there's a, there's a lot of parallels with, for instance, the Egyptians uh, view the world that you know, even persistence is. A change, change, as far as the Egyptian is concerned, uh, and so I, I suspect that we're all literalists now, 
and will, to a very great extent, compared to shamanistic societies. And that literalism within our culture that makes us ask questions like that mm. is very much a product of something that came along after it started with Plato. And, you know, Plato possibly suggests that it started with Socrates. Um, we don't know because we only really have we only really have Plato's word for it. What Socrates said, you know. So, um, but the the key point is that that put things in a little box. Idea that we're all deeply steeped in now didn't exist at that time. So I strongly suspect that that Thales wasn't uh, seen as literally the element of water. You know, the scientific yeah, element. Yeah, it's more like the, the, the fluid changing nature of something. Yes. I mean, the, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I can understand that on the baseline at least. <laughs> yeah, so exactly. The other thing I wanted to ask you was um, the, the tradition of writing things down. That you know, yeah. the written words. You know, we we talked about yeah. how. That Judaism is, is and the Christianity are religions of the book. And uh, did that all start yeah. with the Greeks too? Uh, not really. No, it started with the Egyptians and the, the Mesopotamians, the Sumerians. Okay. Um, but but obviously the Greeks went far and wide. Uh, there's there's also uh, you know, other cultures that start fighting really early on. But know that the but I, I, as we see also in China, you know, with the oracle bones, those things started as uh, ritual to often started as sort of divinatory uh, symbols, uh, you know, with um, with shamanism used in a divinatory mode, mm-hmm. and they would be used for and also as, as tallies in commerce. You know, these people were commercial um, people, and so this idea of writing things down sort of developed among them for purposes of uh, religion, religious ritual, and also. For uh, commercial purposes, hmm. and but no, that, that that idea, that stuff was earlier than than what became the Greeks. Hmm. Uh, it's debatable at what point in time the the Greeks actually started viewing themselves as Greek. Uh, if you'd gone back then, you know, we had Athens and Sparta and various other places, uh, and as, uh, Athenian would have seen themselves as a, a Athenian first and a, a, a Greek at distance second. Yeah, you know? yeah. Um, and this is even long after the time of Thales, yeah. So, well, they spent a war with each other, didn't they? So, uh, they should did, <laughs> and with with everybody, basically everybody. Yeah, so uh, no, very good at war. It's easy to forget that these guys were really, really good at war, um, and they were very good. Obviously, they were seafaring people, so they're very good at naval warfare, uh, which is effectively what saved them from the Persians, wasn't it? Mm. You know, um, impressive as the um, was it the three hundred Spartans at defence. Yeah. Uh, was it, it was actually their naval capability that, that saved their necks from that en- enormously powerful impact. Mm. Um, and uh, yeah, again, it's um, it's worldview, isn't it? And you we all, as we said before, what we see in the past through lenses, subsequent lenses of each and every intervening period. And my point with Thales um, and, and the manager's school is that what we see of them is heavily filtered by what we've inherited from the much later Plato, Socrates, sorry, Socrates, Plato and Aristotle. Give you an idea how much later uh, Thales died in 545 uh, and Socrates was born around 470. Yeah, so 
So there's a gap there, you know. Yeah, there's yeah. a big gap there. These two people were not alive at the same time. And Socrates is the earliest of these three big philosophers. I don't dispute there were philosophers. My, my view is the first philosopher was Socrates in terms of what we call philosopher mm-hmm. today. Um, and so, you know, and you've got uh, the work of Anaximenes, even the last of the Milesian school was still before Socrates was born. So, you know. Um, and there are a few other pe- interesting people from that time, a guy called Heraclitus, uh, who had a lot of ideas that are very, very akin to Taoism. I think there's enough on him that we could do another episode, a whole episode on him, so we'll save that for another time. Okay. Great. Well, I think we've... Uh, cool. I think we've... Um given Thales his dues there. Ah, cool. <laughs> and we'll have a few heresies today, so... Yeah, interesting. So, um, let's, uh, let's uh, get back on with some different Greeks then next time. Cool, mate. Thanks a lot. All right, then. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.